James Webb detects carbon dioxide on the surface of Europa, a full metal exoplanet, searching for tiny Dyson spheres and learning how black holes eat so quickly. All this and more in this week's Space Bites. Last week we talked about a Hycean world where you've got this planet with a thick hydrogen atmosphere surrounding a very deep water ocean uh, could be habitable in a much wider range of places. Well, now astronomers have found what they think is like the opposite of this, which is a planet that seems to be made entirely of metal. The planet is called Gliese 367b, and it is classified as an ultra short period planet. So it orbits its star every 7.7 .7 hours, it has about 63% the mass of Earth and about 70% the size of Earth. And when you add all these numbers together, astronomers found that its density is roughly double the density of Earth. And so the only way you could get a planet like that is if you took planet Earth and you stripped away the entire mantle and crust, all of the, the rocky material, and you're left with the core, although like maybe it's a little bit bigger than that. But like imagine this planet that is just like made of iron and nickel and other heavier elements almost entirely. So how could you get a planet like this? Well, so one possibility is that the planet went through some kind of colossal collision where all of its outer mantle was stripped away. And we saw something similar to this with a much larger, much more massive planet. With a smaller terrestrial planet, this might be a little easier to do, where you get two terrestrial planets crashing into each other and the collision is so strong that the mantle is thrown off into space and it doesn't recollect on the planet and you're just left with the exposed core. And does that sound familiar to you? It's very similar to the Psyche 16 asteroid, which is here in the solar system. And astronomers think it is like the exposed core of a planetesimal. And NASA's Psyche mission is going to be launching in just a couple of weeks now to go and fly to this planetesimal asteroid and see what it looks like, you know, like it could have volcanoes of metal. So hopefully updates from the Psyche mission will give us some more insights into some of these weird extreme exoplanets that astronomers are finding. Webb finds a source of carbon dioxide on Europa. Astronomers have pointed James Webb Space Telescope at Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons, and it has detected the presence of carbon dioxide coming out of the world in a very specific location. And this is really surprising because there is nothing about Europa that should be generating carbon dioxide. I mean, it's this thick shell of ice surrounding a liquid water ocean surrounding some kind of rocky interior. You know, there's not volcanoes on the surface of Europa that are going to be belching carbon dioxide into space. And the region is one of the newest parts on the surface of Europa, a place called Terra Regio. And it's thought that this was probably where there could have been a more recent meteorite impact onto the surface of Europa, and maybe its ice had gotten resurfaced around this area. And so it's fairly fresh material on the surface of Europa. And so one of the intriguing ideas is that there is carbon dioxide mixed in with the ocean of water underneath the ice. And then as this reaches the surface, this is being exposed to space and it's kind of eroding away into space. And James Webb was able to detect the presence of this carbon dioxide. I mean, we see carbon dioxide in the Earth's oceans. It is a, a gigantic sink of carbon dioxide. What I would really like, of course, is this to be the European space whales that are rising to the surface and breathing out 
but I will take eroding stores of carbon dioxide in the ice as well. Now, one of the big questions is whether or not there are geysers on Europa. We saw hints of these geysers from the Hubble Space Telescope. And astronomers tried to use JWST to see these same geysers, but according to the scientists, they didn't see any evidence for them. That doesn't mean they're not there. It just means that they weren't able to pick them up while they were seeing this strong sign of carbon dioxide. We're still waiting for NASA's Europa Clipper to make the journey to Jupiter and go into orbit around Jupiter and make a lot of flybys past Europa. And we should get sort of some great answers to this question, as well as the European Space Agency's JUICE mission, which has already launched. And so, you know, we're seeing really intriguing ideas about what could be at Europa and all of the right tools are descending. They're coming together to Europa to get to the bottom of this question. We should be looking for techno signatures. We talk a lot here on the channel about the search for biosignatures. That's of course, some kind of sign that life is on a planet and it is interacting. Maybe it is producing chemicals in the atmosphere like methane or carbon dioxide or water vapor or ozone. And we could use that to find out that there is indeed some kind of life on that planet. But the problem is that all of those types of chemicals are inconclusive. There are organic ways that those chemicals can be produced and there are inorganic ways those chemicals can be produced. And so, you know, I've provided these examples before. From organic, you could have cows burping. Inorganic, you could have volcanoes burping, and that would still produce methane into the atmosphere. But there are a range of chemicals that we have in the atmosphere on Earth. There is no way to produce them in some kind of inorganic fashion that we know of. So a couple of examples of this are nitrogen trifluoride and sulfur hexafluoride. So these are examples of chemicals that life just can't seem to make. With nitrogen trifluoride, you've got bonds between nitrogen and fluorine. And with sulfur hexafluoride, you've got bonds between sulfur and fluorine. And these are just not chemical bonds that life is able to do. But we know these chemical bonds exist because we've made them. Technology. Our industrial processes have produced these kinds of chemicals and they've put them into the atmosphere of Earth. And so a new paper suggests that if we scan the atmospheres of other exoplanets with telescopes like James Webb Space Telescope, and we see the presence of those atmospheres, then we know there is a technological civilization there that is producing some kind of pollution in its atmosphere with its industry. And I guess a techno signature is a kind of biosignature. And so you figured out that there's life there because you found an advanced society on that planet. Although I guess there could be robots and they wouldn't be life exactly, but still. Another idea is that we could be searching for Dyson spheres. When Freeman Dyson came up with the idea of Dyson spheres, he kind of assumed that you would build the Dyson sphere at the radius of Earth. And that would give you the right amount of illumination from the sun to give you the same kind of climate on Earth. But that's a big assumption. Like, are we sure that that is the most efficient way? And when you think about the amount of mass that would be required to build a Dyson swarm or a Dyson sphere, you're going to try to optimize that process. So a new paper came out from Jason Wright, who I've interviewed several times in the past, and he tried to figure out what is the most efficient, what's the most optimum way to build a Dyson sphere when you consider the amount of mass that you're using, the amount of energy that you're trying to harvest from the star, and then of course all of the waste heat that you're going to be producing. And what he found was that instead you actually want your Dyson sphere to be pretty small so small that the surface temperature of the sphere is more like about 300 Kelvin. 
And so it's a very efficient use of mass. You're going to be extracting all of the energy from the star. You're going to be using it for your process. And then the waste heat that's coming out of that Dyson sphere is going to be at 300 Kelvin. And that gives you a signature to look for. In other words, you could be scanning the universe, looking for these point source objects that are shining at a around 300 Kelvin, and that could tell you that there could be a Dyson sphere there. And Jason also said that you could actually distinguish between the ones that are partly completed and the ones that are fully completed. So you can imagine if there's some alien empire out there that is expanding out in space, one of these grabby aliens, you could see this sort of central area where all of the Dyson spheres have been completed. And then the half completed Dyson spheres as this sort of expanding sphere around the area. And that would be this telltale signature that there's a, a an advanced civilization over there in space. Astronomers watched a gamma ray burst move through the solar system. So in October 2022, a very powerful gamma ray burst was detected here on Earth. This was probably a extremely massive star that underwent a core collapse. And the light had traveled for about 2.4 billion years. And after the detection was made, astronomers went back and looked through all of the spacecraft and detectors that were active in the solar system at the time, and they realized that they had been able to detect the presence of the gamma ray burst. So the first spacecraft to detect the gamma ray burst was NASA's stereo spacecraft, which is actually looking at the sun, but it detected the particles passing through the environment and registered it that astronomers were able to figure that out later. And then about 100 seconds later, the gamma ray burst hit Earth and a bunch of space based detectors were able to find it. And then four minutes later than that, it was detected at Mars with NASA's MAVEN spacecraft. And so you've got this picture of this gamma ray burst that is passing through the solar system and our different instruments and spacecraft are detecting it at each point, which is really cool. Every week we do a vote here on our channel, a way for you to tell us what was the best story of the week. And last week, the winner by a landslide was that James Webb had found this possible first Hycean world and a possible biosignature in the atmosphere of this world. So like obviously huge news and uh, you all were quite excited about that. So uh, thank you everyone who voted last week. Just remember this vote will show up in the community tab. Like if you're scrolling in your phone on mobile and you, you know, you go through a bunch of videos and then you see the vote, just take a second and give us a vote. You're more likely to see it if you're subscribed to the channel. So hint, hint, subscribe to the channel. Colliding galaxy clusters are too big, too early. Like just get comfortable with these kinds of stories because we're going to get a lot of them as astronomers continue to work out the history of the early universe. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the El Gordo galaxy cluster seen by James Webb, and it was sort of a good example of where you can see a lot of gravitational lenses in an image. Well, it turns out this cluster is merging with another cluster, and astronomers were able to map out the mass of all of the galaxies in both of the clusters that are coming together. And what they found was that you shouldn't get collisions this big this early into the universe. And so this starts to rub up against 
some of the estimates that were made with the lambda cold dark matter model of the universe. You know, this really comes down to the precision of the measurements of the galaxy clusters involved. And of course, there could be lots of errors in the measurements. There could be some mistakes in the estimates of the galaxy, although the astronomers were quite careful about those measurements. And of course, you know, maybe there could be further cracks in the lambda cold dark matter model of the universe. And so uh, it's exciting. You know, we're going to be seeing all of these interesting measurements. They're calling various theories into question. People are going to have to work harder to find more data and evidence to explain it. And 20 years from now, we'll have a much better, more resilient and reliable understanding of the large scale cosmology of the universe. Supermassive black holes change the chemistry of their galaxies. People always ask me if supermassive black holes are like the anchor of a galaxy. Like if you didn't get that supermassive black hole in the middle, then the whole galaxy would fall apart. And they're not the anchor. You know, you could get like maybe 1% of the mass of the entire galaxy is the supermassive black hole. So it's not very much. And when you think about the large dark matter halo that's surrounding it, that is the anchor of the galaxy. But supermassive black holes do seem to have an effect on the chemistry of the stars in the galaxy. You sort of imagine black holes just constantly consuming material, but as they get too much material, this material piles up around it into an accretion disk, and then you get these polar jets that start to form out of the supermassive black hole. And we see these as active galactic nuclei, or quasars. And then this material sort of reaches the intergalactic medium and then starts to come down around it, sort of the area around the accretion disk gets enriched by other chemicals because the, the accretion disk around the black hole is sort of acting like a star. There's such temperature and pressure in this accretion disk that you get x-rays that are blasting out and you've got molecules forming around the black hole. And so astronomers did a survey of the chemicals in the region around an actively feeding supermassive black hole. And they found that the chemical constituents are different than the ones they find with galaxies that are quiet. And so whenever this galaxy is going to this actively feeding phase, it is enriching the chemicals in the area surrounding it. And so that could be sort of helping to encourage some of the more heavier elements that we find across galaxies like the Milky Way could be that Without a supermassive black hole, you're just not going to get those enriched chemicals. And black holes can eat faster than we thought. So one of the big unsolved questions in cosmology is how the early black holes got so big so early. And you look at some of these data from James Webb, and you've got supermassive black holes that were present 500 million years after the Big Bang, ones that are a billion times the mass of the sun by a billion years after the Big Bang. Like, like... Those are very heavy black holes. And astronomers have tried to work out how these black holes could get so big so quickly. You sort of imagine you get one big star, it explodes as a supernova, leaves a black hole, another one happens over here, they meet, they merge together, they feed on material around there. But it's really hard to get to a billion times the mass of the sun from this bottom up process. And so the one idea is that, well, maybe you get these black holes, they just form directly out of this large cloud of material. And then you can get a black hole that maybe has a million times the mass of the sun without having to go through all that pesky merger stage. But maybe black holes can eat faster than astronomers originally thought. And so when they watch quasars, you know, these actively feeding black holes, they see this sort of natural variation in brightness coming from the quasar. 
and astronomers assumed that this was just, you know, as material was falling into the quasar. But a new simulation shows that as a disk of material starts to form around the black hole, you get these sort of torquing forces that will strip away this inner ring of material and possibly even put it into a different tilt than the outer uh, accretion disk that surrounds the black hole. And the black hole is able to very efficiently consume this inner ring. And so you get a lot more bright activity around the black hole as this material is, is being consumed. And then the black hole gets a little quiet and pulls the next chunk of material out of this outer ring into the inner ring and then feeds on that. And it seems like it might be very efficient. And so in fact, black holes might be able to consume the material in their accretion disk a lot more quickly than astronomers thought. And so now actually bottom up merging black holes is back on the table. We're over our summer hiatus, and that means that our questions and answers shows are back. We did the first live stream on Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, and we're going to do them every Monday. And so if you want to ask me questions about space and astronomy, I will stick around and I will answer as many of the questions as I have time for. And then we edit all of those questions down into the Q&As, and you see those come out every week. Like we should have the next one come out on Tuesday, and then every Tuesday after that. And so when we do the show, the first hour or so, I record the episode for the Q&A, and then I stick around for as much time as I have energy for to just keep answering questions, and that's called overtime. We make the episode unlisted after we finish doing the live stream, mostly because YouTube's algorithm punishes very long, low production videos, and so we don't want to keep that in the feed. But if you know the link, you can find the episode. We've added a new perk for the patrons, which is a patron-only podcast feed. We do a monthly question show just for the patrons, which runs, the last episode was like two and a half hours long, and we put that into the patron-only feed, give you sort of behind-the-scenes information about what we're doing with Universe Today, and I try to get through every single question. As well, we're going to be putting all of these overtime segments from the live show into this patron-only feed, so it's a very convenient way. You can get the QA, and then you can also get the overtime in a separate patron-only feed. What I like best about this is that you can just take your own personal RSS feed and add it to your podcast app, and then just like our regular Universe Today podcast, these will show up for you when the new episodes are ready. So you don't have to like remember to go to the website and download it or listen to it on your computer. That's really uncivilized. You just want to be able to have it show up in your podcast and be able to listen to it, and that's what this does. So if you are into podcasts, if you much prefer podcasts as a way to get your space and astronomy news, and you want to support the work that we do, consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash universe today, and then you can sign up for this patron-only feed and get lots of additional content. SpaceX test engines for the lunar starship. When NASA returns to the moon in 2025 uh, with Artemis 3, they're going to be using a modified SpaceX starship as their landing system. This is going to fly separately to the moon. It's going to go into orbit around the moon. And then when the NASA astronauts show up in their Orion capsule, they're going to move to this gigantic lunar lander, and then they're going to use that to go down to the surface of the moon. But what's different about this mission from other missions is that this thing is going to have to stay in lunar orbit in the coldness of space and go through various temperature fluctuations for potentially several weeks, several months, much longer than any landing system has ever been developed to handle. And so one of NASA's big questions is, can you restart the engines when it's been in the coldness of space for a long time? 
And so SpaceX just did a test where they took one of the Raptor engines, cooled it down to the kind of temperature that you would expect the engine to be at when it's at lunar orbit, and then they were able to turn it on, fire it for the duration that NASA needed, and demonstrate that, yes, indeed, this engine can handle a cold start. And so at this point, NASA has signed a $2.89 billion contract with SpaceX to provide the landing system for Artemis 3, and they've signed a further $1.15 billion contract for Artemis 4. And so there's like a lot riding on getting Starship flying and getting it to be the human landing service so that it synchronizes with all of the work that NASA is doing for the Artemis 3 and eventually the Artemis 4 missions. 2023 was the hottest summer on record. All right, I know you all suspected this, but now the numbers are in and the entire summer, June, July and August of 2023 were the hottest summer since people have been keeping records since the mid 1800s. The average temperature was 0.23 degrees Celsius than any other summer on record and 1.2 degrees Celsius higher than the average between 1951 and 1980 and then higher than the historical average pre-industrial. Obviously, this led to a bunch of issues. We had the Canadian wildfires, you had the US heat waves, you had the Antarctic Ocean ice loss, and the increased hurricane activity that's happening right now. And that's it. Just like no good news, just hottest summer on record. Finally, OSIRIS-REx is coming home on Sunday. So if you're wondering what you're going to be doing on Sunday, I recommend that you're going to be glued to NASA television and watching as the OSIRIS-REx mission returns to Earth. Coverage is going to start at 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, which is 7 a.m. for me. And this is, this is when the OSIRIS-REx mission is going to deploy its return capsule. It's going to pass through the atmosphere and it's gonna land at the US Department of Defense's Utah test and training range. And then they're going to retrieve the sample, bring it back, put it into a refrigerator, and then open up the capsule uh, in the coming days and sort of make sure that all of the samples are there and then scientists will get to work on it. So we'll talk more about how it all turned out next week, but if you wanna sort of watch the moment live, Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern time. All right, I'm going to talk more about searching for techno signatures in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipplin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonad, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. Every time I talk about some way to search for life in the universe, to search for evidence of extraterrestrials, of advanced civilizations, I get some version of this in the comments where people say something like, why would we think that aliens would use radio waves to communicate with us? Why do we think that aliens would be having nuclear wars that we could detect? Why do we think that aliens are going to ruin their planet with carbon dioxide and cause runaway global warming? Why are we looking for these things? And, you know, my response to this is like, what else have you got? Like all astronomers are doing is they're taking the cleverest ideas they can think of, both the kinds of evidence that humanity gives off into space, as well as the kind of evidence that planet Earth is giving off into space. And then you're adding every single possible idea that you can imagine, like you could see aliens sending 
their giant spacecraft with powerful lasers that is sending them on their way and you could watch the flash or maybe you're seeing alien civilizations turning their stars into Dyson spheres and you can watch this in mid-construction. Like you just take every possible idea. There was a paper that had come out where someone was proposing, you know, the 60 or 70 ideas that have been thought of so far. And some of them are really clever. And the, you're just like, why not try? Like how hard is it to look through the signals that you're already doing for radio astronomy to see if you see any signals from an alien civilization sending it our way? Or how hard is it to examine infrared survey data of the universe to see if you can see a, an expanding empire of Dyson spheres? All of these ideas are long shots that the chances of any one of them turning out right are astronomical, but it doesn't hurt to look. And like, what else have you got that's better? Like, if you have a better idea for how to search for life in the universe, propose it. And if it's a cool idea, then the astronomers will add it to their big list. And then when people have spare telescope time or they're thinking a little bit, maybe they'll use that idea for a thing to look for. And so, like, shouldn't we be curious? Shouldn't we be creative? Shouldn't we be thinking out of the box? Shouldn't we have open minds about what's possible out there? I, I find, like, people are bummers. And they're just like, oh, what can't win? Don't try. I don't want to bother doing that. I'm not putting you in charge. Um, I want some can-do attitude around here. So I love all these ideas. It doesn't hurt to look. And I can't wait for us to find the answer. All right. We'll see you next week.